This is the Thanksgiving weekend, and lots of folks are 
away, traveling around the country or even out of the country. This is uh, Saturday and yesterday was Black Friday and I have an African-American friend who said, no, actually it's called Friday of Color. I prefer to call it Friday of Color. And it's a time when people go out and buy things they don't need for cheap. And it's, it's quite an amazing holiday that we've developed whereby you, it's, the, it's the sale day and things you didn't know that you needed are now cheaper than ever. So you wind up spending a lot of money buying stuff that after you finally get it, you get buyer's remorse. And you think, I wonder if I could send it back now. It's too much trouble. So the next, next year, a year goes by and you, some people don't even open those packages that they buy. After all, how many secure digital cards at 32 gigabytes can you buy before you know your camera just you can only use one at a time? You know? so it's an amazing mentality that we developed about uh, this time of the year. And might mention uh, two other mindfulnesses. Tonight we're going to hear about contemplations. One mindfulness is that uh, this is indeed my mother's birthday, which is a thing of note. And uh, we've been celebrating that today, but uh, and that's significant certainly for my life. But the uh, um, were when you send the Dharma around the world, as we do with our our webcasts and our blogs and such, you realize that Thanksgiving is an American holiday, uniquely American. They don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Canada. They don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Australia. I know that they celebrate Canada too. Canada Turkey Day? No, not that I know of. We don't do Boxing Day. Anybody, any Canadians who do Thanksgiving? Any Canadians online who are saying yes, indeed, we did? I don't think so. Okay, maybe, maybe you can import it up there. <laughs> American culture goes north, but. In Asia, friends in Taiwan who say that Taiwan has totally copied Christmas and Halloween. Halloween is huge in Taiwan. And uh, they have this Taiwanese take on costumes. But uh, certainly not Thanksgiving. So this is, this is definitely our, our way of doing things. And uh, as such, it remains one of the least commercial of holidays. It's, it's one of the more pure in that it goes back to a root of gratitude. So that's just where we are in our year, and uh, it's a fine time to, to dig into the Avatamsaka Sutra to uh, get some, uh, get the Buddha's voice here at, as the year turns towards winter. So if you would please turn to page four and page five in our new manuscript here. This is indeed um, a work in progress, in the best sense, in that we're translating as we go, we're retranslating as we go, and this is a all of a six-page uh, edition. This is our the one we just finished. This is the, the third ground. So we we took took us a while to get through that, and we've got a equally large. Uh, provisional manuscript for the second and the first ground. So we're uh, learning as we go, and, and uh, when we're done, we should have a, a brand new version of the ten grounds, but that will be for a while. So in the meantime, we're 
adding to our, our text. So we're on the top of page four. There are three stanzas of four lines each. And because we're, uh, those of us in the Theravada tradition are uh, adapting a tradition that's been in the world in Pali for some time. And those of us in the Chinese Mahayana are bringing the tradition across from Asia in the Chinese tradition. If we're Vietnamese American Buddhists, then we're adapting Vietnamese Buddhist culture for for the West and for Western culture and people's minds. So we're very much in a bridge process. We're crossing over from Asia to the West and in many interesting ways uh, going back to Asia as well, having uh, put the Dharma through a filter of Western culture. So that's where we are. As a result of that bridge process, that translation, we honor that by doing the Chinese first and then the English. So I'm going to put my palms together and uh, going to chant with a melody because these are the verses that were probably recited uh, with the melody to facilitate the, the memorization and the understanding. So we're going to do that in the Chinese and then uh, we'll recite together in unison the, the English as we go. So, so let's do that. I'll give you a line and you give it back to me. Let's read it together. In a hundred thousand eons, it is hard to get to hear principles such as these, the grounds of the wise ones. Now our chance has come and we can hear the wondrous Dharma sound of Bodhisattva's sublime practices. Right. Who's speaking? This is a Bodhisattva whose name is Vajra Treasury, Treasury of Vajra. And this Bodhisattva is uh, one of many who speak during the, the process of the Avatamsaka Sutra. This is the, the Huayan in Chinese, the Kegong Kyo in Japanese, the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra in, in Sanskrit, and probably translated as uh, Flower Garland, Flower Garland Sutra in English. And this Bodhisattva. Uh, received the Buddha's empowerment, his entrustment to speak the Dharma. So it's interesting that this, this sutra is not the Buddha's voice per se. And uh, that brings up an interesting other point that maybe people are not aware of, that um, in, at least in the Mahayana version of the Buddha's teaching, we're not hearing the Buddha's voice either, we're hearing Ananda's voice. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, and... Uh, was uh, just a young 
boy on, well, he was just born on the day the Buddha was uh, awakened and so enlightened. So he's much younger than the Buddha, but he's a blood relative and uh, very much taken with his cousin, the Buddha. And so he uh, spent all of his time with the Buddha and uh, had a great memory. He's said to be foremost in memory, foremost in scholarship and learning. And so he heard everything the Buddha said and then passed it on. That's why the sutras begin with, thus I have heard, to indicate that it was Ananda speaking and not the Buddha. It was the Ananda's memory of what the Buddha said. But uh, equally interesting, if, you're, if you look back at ancient texts or if you've studied the Bible or the Quran or the Vedas or any of the, uh, the ancient religious scriptures that are around, many of them are challenged for the authenticity. People say, well, I really don't know exactly how much of the Gospels Jesus actually spoke. So it's a, there, there are uh, questions among scholars, people who look back at the ancient texts, and they, they use language analysis, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, and Latin, and to go back and, and uh, look at, at the, the sources of the Gospels, the earliest known versions that we find, and potentially there are more to be found. Maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls was found in a, in a vase, in a cave somewhere, in a crockery pot, and somebody was chopping it up and using it as firewood, using it to burn for heat, and someone else was using it to wrap fish in, and, you know, it was not recognized as a priceless, you know, the Gospels, the earliest one. But they saved enough of it to, to verify that, that uh, this was a very, very old book. And so the challenge came up, how much of, of that is can we say is the, the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as they talk about Jesus of Nazareth. So what we're talking about is called apocrypha. This is what scholars do, is they trace old things and try to estimate how much is actually uh, traceable back to the, to the source, the founder of the religion. This is a, a good thing to do for people of that mind. You know, In Buddhism, interestingly enough, there are texts that people say, oh, the Buddha never spoke this, but only a small percentage, by and large, the majority of the sutras in the Mahayana are traced back to this source, which was Ananda. And while some of the more important Mahayana texts in through the Sanskrit, kind of the Sanskrit uh, filter, the ones that came to us in Sanskrit are mostly considered not to have been altered by uh, by scribes. That's one of the places they say scribes changed it. People, when they were copying it down, they changed it. Or it was not religious at all. It was a political text. And there are, there are uh, uh, stories in the, in the, certainly in the biblical tradition about texts being uh, suppressed by parties somewhere along the way of, the, of us getting to the Bible. Uh, others were pr- promoted by other groups because it forwarded their ambitions. The emperor liked this one and didn't like that one, etc. So all kinds of stories that arise when you look back at something that old. Old, old books, among the oldest things we have in our world. 
are sacred texts because people keep them going. Their value is recognized, so we keep them alive. In Buddhism, by and large, that is not the case. Now, there, as I say that, I, I realize that there are, uh, among Buddhist traditions themselves, there are people who would say the Lotus Sutra is, doesn't exist or shouldn't, be, shouldn't exist. And there are other people who look at, at other texts and say, well, these were uh, never spoken by the Buddha. But by and large, when the scholars go back and check the authenticity of texts, this is said to be a, uh, um, as close as we get to the, the voice of the Buddha. So, the voice of the Buddha? Nope, not the voice of Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva. So, there we are. Interesting, isn't it? Why all of this murkiness? Why all of this... Uh, why is there so much to say about the actual text? One good reason, a simple one, is it's old. This is really old. Other than the planet itself and the mountains and the woods and the, the rivers and the weather, what do you have in your world that is 2,500 years old? Not a lot. Another thing you could say that is that old is the Buddhist Sangha, the institution of monks and nuns leaving home to give their lives to the propagation of the Dharma. So the Sangha is a, a living fossil. You know, it's, it's uh, the, the longest running fraternity on the planet, pretty much, without, without question. Monks, men and women, living uh, with the same robes, the same schedule of the day, the same customs, the same organization, the same... Uh, practices as those practiced in the Buddhist time. How interesting that is. You know, when you go back and think about it, what else in the world is that old? Mm, marriage, men and women coming together. Um, what else? Politics, uh, having people try to govern themselves, that's an old institution. But to have one that is as precise as the Buddhist Sangha is very rare, very special. So, um, Let's look at this first stanza and, and put this all in perspective. What do we have? Let's look at the Chinese. Do you have the, your text there, page 4? In this way, wise ones, meanings of the grounds, plural, word by word, like this, wisdom one, plural, ground, meaning. Okay? Next, in order to make sense of that, we have to add the next sentence. Yu bai qian jie shen nan de. There's the verb. Yu in hundred by qian thousand jie kalpas or eons. Shen very nan difficult de no, to get, to obtain. So we switch the order to make sense of it in English. Second sentence first. So, in a hundred thousand eons, it's really hard to get the meanings of the grounds of those with wisdom, of the wise ones. In a hundred thousand eons, it's hard to get to hear principles such as these, the grounds of the wise ones. So, here's our Bodhisattva saying exactly the same thing. He's saying, yeah, wow. Now, from the time of the Buddhas, when the Buddha was in the world, so shoot back 2,550 years, 
And here's a bodhisattva who was there speaking on behalf of the Buddha. And he said, boy, these are hard to get to hear even then. So you add 2,500 years onto this timeline. And you can think how hard it is now, how rare to encounter these texts. And here they are in multiple languages. How nice, how nice that is. In 100,000 eons, it's hard to get to hear principles such as these, the grounds of the wise ones says Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, speaking on behalf of the Buddha. What else? Two more lines. I, but it means we. We, today, all of a sudden, just like that, just as it arises, there's the same word as the last one in sentence two, we get to one here. Now we get our chance. This is the time we can hear it. This is a very interesting sentence. Look, bodhisattvas, sheng, sublime, wondrous, special, heng, practices. Miao, wondrous, fa, dharma, in, sound. The wonderful dharma sound of bodhisattvas, sublime practices. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that's what our, our chapter, the ten, the 10 Grounds chapter, is all about. What bodhisattvas do. It's about the practices, the deeds of awakened beings. People who live not only for themselves. People whose lives are um, big-hearted. People whose eyes are wide. They don't only see... The benefit in front of them, they in fact uh, see that clearly, but they also see, they want it to go further. They see the benefits to others. So that would be a bodhisattva. And the things they do, they're sublime practices. Sublime because they're unselfish, because they're expansive and uplifting. People who, when you're with them, you're, you're, you gain altitude. You see things from a higher perspective just by being with them. So that's the wondrous Dharma sound of Bodhisattva's wonders, of Bodhisattva's sublime practices. We get to hear those now at this point, and they're really hard to get to encounter over hundreds of thousands of eons, and eon is a very long period of time. And these are indeed the, the meanings of the grounds of wise ones. Okay, so here's our bodhisattva saying, yeah, special. This is not ordinary. This is, goes beyond the news. It goes beyond the sports scores. And, and uh, goes beyond the holidays and, and the, the uh, ups and downs of politics. And these are, to get to hear the grounds, are very special. Now, is that an opinion or is that... Could you say, is that true? Is that, a, is that factual? Well, facts are... We learned that in our last election, uh, is that facts depend on who's telling them to be facts. You can have competing sets of facts um, when you have people trying to get into office. So is this an opinion of the Bodhisattva that these are so rare? Mm. In order to answer that, probably there's a lot of different answers. But one way to look at it, one way to measure it, would be to say um, 
something like, uh, what's the intent? If you want to know whether a thought in the mind is a wholesome thought or an unwholesome thought, a harmful thought or a skillful thought, it's sometimes it's hard to tell because when you flip it over, it, hard, bad for you could be good for someone else. So what do you use as your yardstick? And the answer is often intention. What did you mean? What was the purpose behind what you said? The words themselves are plastic, but the intent is pretty clear if you're honest and listening. So if good words, if the intent was to deceive, become less good, become bad words. So what was the Buddha's intent in talking about what were the wise ones' intent as they talked about these grounds? And you'd have to say uh, ending suffering, for sure. Making people hurt less. Mm, giving life to animals that were about to be slaughtered. Um, waking people up from harmful behavior that they themselves, because somebody led them astray, bad friends, you wake them up and say, it's okay if you don't go to Reno over the weekend. You'll come, you, you may not have quite as much excitement, but you'll have money in your pocket, you won't have, have gotten drunk, you won't have gotten in a fight, you won't have uh, lost it all at the gambling tables. So it's okay. To have a friend who can wake you up is a wholesome intent. So there you go, ending suffering. That's a wholesome intent. And mm, if you use that yardstick to measure these texts, they, they stand the test. That's good enough. There's goodness here by preventing harm. So the principle is what? Ahimsa. What is that wonderful word? Ahimsa. Sanskrit word that means no harm. If you apply that as your yardstick. Yeah, I'll, if I have to decide in myself, should I do it or shouldn't I? Should I do it or shouldn't I? Got a choice. Mm, yes or no. Looks pretty good, but something in the back of my mind is going ding, 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 ding. So, who's going to decide? Well, in the end, you have to decide. I have to decide. How do you find out? One thing is, open the sutra. Check what bodhisattvas do, because that's a fairly unwavering standard based on the Buddha's insight. So, if you don't have the sutra and you've got to make a decision, ask yourself, who, who gets hurt if I do this? Anybody? If the answer is nobody, it's benefit for all, probably it's okay. Go do it with energy. But if the answer is someone else gets hurt so that I can go forward, then the Buddha would say that is not wholesome, skillful. It's not a decreasing harm. It's increasing suffering. So you're still free to do it. The Buddha is never going to say, Therefore, you're bad and I don't like you or you're going to hell. He'll say, there's consequences. This is not free. It's, there's a price tag, a hidden price tag on this action, which is suffering and karma that's involved. So we think it's, we call it what? We call it a great restaurant, fancy restaurant. This is a really nice night at a restaurant. And you go in and you get the braised duck and you get the caviar and you get the pig's knuckles and 
I guess probably you don't go to the pig knuckle restaurants that much, like different part of town. But you wind up with all kinds of animal bodies in your stomach and the result is you're connected to those animals in a harmful, not a harmless way. So you go, hmm, if I'd thought it over, I could have gone to the vegan restaurant all the same, the veggie restaurant, or I could have brought them to my apartment and cooked up some really yummy vegetarian stew that is karma-free, and we would have had a good time. So these are choices that we make, and if we can ask ourselves, harmless or harmful, ahimsa or harmful, then uh, we can say, okay, there's the motive. And let's apply that to our sutra. All the principles here are guaranteed harmless and beneficial for all. Um, one of the huge awakenings that I had was um, I'm, I'm about to claim a huge awakening. Uh -oh. Anybody worried about that? If the monk is going to claim a huge awakening. One of the huge awakenings that I had was um, it, it, I had to go all the way to my graduate education. I was a PhD candidate uh, at the seminary when I finally got to touch the Old Testament, Old Testament studies. I was raised Christian, right? I was a Methodist, but um, my Bible studies, the, the Methodists are Bible light, L-I-T-E, right? Bible light. We're not Bible heavy the way uh, more traditional conservative fundamentalist evangelical congregations might be. So my encounters with the Old Testament were limited to a quote in the sermon every Sunday. The pastor was required to introduce one quote, and often it would be the topic, and then he would go off into, into the gospel. But we touched the Old Testament and the New Testament, so the Hebrew Scriptures and the, New, and the gospel. And didn't have much knowledge of the Old Testament until I got to my two, first two years of graduate study at the Franciscan School of Theology, FST, where Father Michael Guinan, this old classics professor, uh, Franciscan friar, uh, introduced us to <laughs> the Hebrew Scriptures. And he was able to do it because Father Michael was a, cla a language classicist. He had studied at Catholic University uh, in Washington, D.C., and he was an expert in about four biblical languages. And he had been uh, part of a Vatican commission to study the Dead Sea Scrolls, the very text we were talking about. So he knew his chops. He really could handle Greek and Aramaic and Latin and Sumerian and these biblical languages. And uh, he took us through a wild ride through the, through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Scriptures, and uh, had my eyes open. It was a major enlightenment, I must say. So Father Michael was uh, not reverent as he touched the Hebrew Scriptures. He was kind of salty, kind of cynical, or maybe a lot cynical. And he would go, now, those folks who say that every word in the Hebrew Scriptures comes from the mouth of God, 
they probably haven't read the same Bible that I read. He said, he said, I'll show you in this passage where the story of Moses parting the Red Sea, he says every sentence comes from a different layer of accretion of this text, and it's about 200 years per sentence. He said, you see this? This is Aramaic. But you see the next sentence? That's Greek. There was, they lost the text and somebody stitched it together. You know, this section was chopped out by the uh, Pharisees back in old Jerusalem because they didn't like, this didn't help them, you know, establish their rule. And over here, this chunk, you know, and he went on and when you were done, he, he had patched the whole Bible together from, his, from about 700 years of scholars deleting and, we say cutting and pasting now, you know. And uh, then he took us through. He said, well, you know, I just wish. He said, we have a Buddhist monk in the class. That would be me sitting in the front row, you know, my eyes really wide and taking notes. He said, we have a Buddhist monk in the class. And sometimes, you know, I would actually rather be a Buddhist, he says. When it comes to the bloodthirsty, bloodletting genocide in, in this text that I come from, he said, I want to show you a passage here. And he took us through I don't have the, the citation, but it might have been Deuteronomy or it might have been, it was in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books. And uh, he said, here we have the whirlwind going through the valley. You all aware of the whirlwind? No, Father. He said, well, the whirlwind is, uh, he said, that's God. And uh, God appeared to the Israelites as a whirlwind. And uh, it was a particularly bloodthirsty God at that point. He said, uh, he, you're right here, he says, here's the text. And this is fairly, this story comes to us intact, he said, meaning it hadn't been written and rewritten and written and rewritten. He said, and, and the whirlwind says, uh, these, uh, these are disbelievers and the chosen people, that would be the Israelites, are supposed to go through and kill, without exception, every man, woman, child, and animal in the valley and without exception, and kill them all because they are disbelievers. And he said, and so the tribe did that with the aid of the whirlwind. And as it says, as it was for that village, so it was with 60 villages throughout the valley. He said, sometimes when I read that, I just weep and I wish I were a Buddhist. He said. So it's like, oh my goodness. So you, I'm like, this is the Bible? You know. Boy, I didn't read that. <laughs> Let me read that again. He certainly got my attention. And you realize that what we call scripture, or sacred texts, is as much history as it is spiritual guidance, or what we would look to the Buddha Sutras for. How to cultivate principles for perfecting your humanity, ways to practice blessings, ways to transcend birth and death, you know. What do you go to a Buddha Sutra for? Well, not a history about how it was back in the Buddha's time or before. But indeed, here we have in the Old Testament, and I'm taking this from a Franciscan Catholic friar who's been teaching Old Testament at GTU for 30-some years and comes from, you know, he has the pedigree. This is a man who's qualified to know what's in that book, and he's saying... This is a bloodthirsty, God-awful story of cultural, racial genocide of the, the tribes aided by God. 
you know, who appears in the guise of the world. So you think about that, you think, man, that's violent. That's a violent text. And there it is. That's, those are the times. And so why are we shocked? Are we less violent? What do we call it? We call it shock and awe as the bombs descend on Baghdad, right? The missiles and the rockets. Not, we're not going to go there tonight, not to distract us from... But before we, you know, raise an eyebrow and say, yik, the, the Hebrew scriptures are violent, we could say humanity is violent. And at least in the Hebrew scriptures, somebody was keeping track. If that's a historical record and not a fictionalized account meant to sell, to sell scripture or not, that's fairly accurate historic history coming down all these all these thousands of years if we were to tell the truth about what's going on right now with drone strikes and with slavery uh, with the imprisonment of more than half well to, we, we don't want to distract from the focus on the text but to say if we were keeping track right now we would have the story fully as bloodthirsty as the whirlwind going through the valley, disrupting 60 villages. So, not to be shocked, just to say, same old story. We haven't changed that much. Humanity is still at that process of killing each other. In that case, what's kind of fascinating is that there's, quote, divine aid in the story. There's a magical element in that story of the whirlwind. What in the world is a whirlwind? Kamikaze. It's the divine, the shunful, the, the spirit wind. I don't know. Now maybe we call it computerized drone strikes. You know, you can kill somebody from Omaha, Nebraska with a drone that's over Pakistan. So that's probably the equivalent of the whirlwind. Anyway, no matter true or not, Here's in your hand, in front of you, excuse me. <coughs> Here we have with these sutras, at long last, an alternative to that version of humanity. The point of, of that digression to talk about why these are rare and special is there is no bloodshed in these sutras. These are ancient documents that come down with the same amount of sacred attention and focus that we have in the, the Hebrew scriptures. And yet, these are entirely focused on ahimsa. So when you use that yardstick to judge wholesome, unwholesome, you go, yeah, these... That's true. If you read widely, no matter whether it's Pali-based, Agamas or the Nikayas, whether it's the Sanskrit-based sutras of the Mahayana, whether it's the recensions into Tibetan or Mongolian or Vietnamese, Korean, Japanese, you won't find hatred, you won't find greed, you won't find anything that will lead you astray into delusion in these texts. How nice. How wonderful. And yet, 
And yet, somebody might say, yeah, well, it doesn't sound very interesting either. <laughs> I kind of like a little bloodshed in my light reading. That's why we have so many, you know, shoot 'em up movies on the screen. That's why James Bond is so popular. Yet another James Bond film came out, even beyond Ian Fleming's original writing of them. There's a brand new Bond movie, something, what, number 22 or something like that? So, why are these still such incredible, compelling reading? It's because these are human documents. You don't find bloodshed, you don't find greed, you don't find hatred and delusion in these texts, but you do find your own face. You find humanity at its most developed, free of ahimsa, or free with ahimsa intact, free of the killing, the harming that ahimsa is the antidote for. So these are never boring. The Avatamsaka Sutra is like a mirror. And as you, certainly there's language that is ancient and kind of hard, you have to bridge over to the language because it's been with us, as I say, for 2,500 years. But as you go into it, there's no bloodletting, there's no murdering of men, women, children, and livestock, but it keeps your interest because this is a, a document about what I can become if I cultivate the Bodhisattva's sublime practices. It's humanity perfected. So it's the, the rise of humanity, not the fall of humanity. So it, it avoids being dull or boring or somehow too good to be true. It's so good, it, it has to be true. So, all right. Let's look at number two. Here we go. I'll, I'll just do it. Here we go. Yen gong yen shuo chong hui zhe Ho di jie ding wu yu dao Li yi yi jie zhu tian ren Ci zhu fo zi jie yao wan We hope that you, wise one, will go on to proclaim the path of the next ground decisively, omitting nothing. For the benefit of every god and human, we disciples of the Buddha would all like to hear it. Okay, this carries us back to the, the first ground. Actually, before that, to the preface. What was in the preface? We had this really interesting dialogue. The, uh, the Ten Grounds chapter is, is more than halfway through the Avatamsaka Sutra. This is um, in the, uh, this is chapter 26 out of 40. And as it began, people will recall, the, uh, the Buddha gave the job to Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, explained the Ten Grounds. And the other bodhisattvas and the gods and the, the eightfold pantheon of spiritual beings were all there saying, yeah, please, we want to hear the Ten Grounds. We're anxious. We've come a long way to, to hear them. And Vajra Treasury didn't speak. He didn't say anything. And a bodhisattva named Moon of Liberation, Jietoye Pusa, Moon of Liberation Bodhisattva, stood up 
walked around the Buddha with the Bodhisattva with his palms together, bared his shoulder, and said, "We really want to hear the Ten Grounds. We're ready, and we hope you'll speak." And Vajra Treasury still didn't speak. And then the Buddha, after repeated back and forth, the Buddha finally said, "It's okay. Go ahead." Vajra Treasury said, "I don't think so." <laughs> He actually said no to the Buddha. I don't think so. They're not going to get it. It's too lofty. It's too hard for them. Um, this is—it's hard to believe. And if you don't believe it and you slander it, say, "No, it can't be true. This is too far out." Then you haven't helped. You've actually hurt. You've harmed people's faith. So the Buddha says, "Okay, okay, no problem. You go ahead and speak the Dharma." And when the Buddha tells him twice, Vajra Treasury has to has to speak. So he, at that point. Goes ahead, jumps in, and explains these principles. So, this is this text comes out of that back and forth, which I think is so interesting. You know, we say it's a human document where you can kind of imagine the Buddha sitting there, you know, ready to to uh, the time is right to speak the Dharma, and and his spokesperson, who he's tapped, Vajra Treasury, doesn't want to do it. So here. Uh, we have again the request. We hope that you, wise one, meaning Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, will go on to proclaim the path of the next ground decisively. Don't leave anything out. For the benefit of the gods and the humans and everyone here, we disciples of the Buddha would all like to hear. Okay, so there's our there's our request once again. Back to the beginning. And what happened next? Yongmang Dashin Jetoye, Qingjin Kangsang Yen Fozi, Chongsi Zhuanru Di Sidi, Soyo Heng Xiang Yuan Xuan Shuo. The heroic one, big hearted, moon of liberation, Asvaja Treasury, disciple of the Buddha, we wish you would proclaim from here, in turn, all the hallmarks of practice needed to learn the fourth ground. There are um, people who are qualified to know, who say that the Buddha Dharma entirely is education. The whole thing is education. That the Buddha was a teacher, just like your third grade teacher. He's giving us information that we didn't know before, but once we hear it, we awaken to it because this is. The Buddha himself was a person in the world, a prince, who sat still, purified his body, mouth, and mind, focused his his concentration, and discovered the Dharma inside, and then taught it to people's potentials to hear. So, the Dharma is.、Um, It's everybody's got it. You could say it's it's somehow coded deep inside, but we need the requisite shila samadhi and prajna, wisdom, the precepts, the concentration, and the wisdom for it to flow, for it to shine. And so we've this this knowledge is there, this information is there, but the teacher has to has to wake us up to it. You know the the phrase that. Education is remembering. 
that, was that Plato quoted that? Who said, don't check. Anybody who's got his Wikipedia, put it away. But we could check. And I think you're probably, what is it? Learning is a process of remembering. Einstein or Plato? Plato, yeah. All learning is a process of remembering. So that knowledge is there. We just have to, oh, now I see the connection. Ah, that makes sense. Oh, right, that's, hmm. Hear that echoing deep down, you know, like that. That's the process of waking up to the Dharma wisdom that we have in us, kind of like software on your hard drive that you boot up and then it starts to work. So, is the Buddha a teacher? Is this an education? That's an interesting way to look at at the Dharma. So, big-hearted Muna Liberation, the heroic one, who, despite Vajra Treasury, who's a pretty awesome individual, did not get bullied, didn't get uh, intimidated, not that Vajra Treasury would intimidate him, but he, you know, socially, as he was asking for the Dharma, it would have been kind of more convenient for him to go, okay, just acquiesce. But he said, actually, you know, these are bodhisattvas who have real profound roots of goodness. You should speak. It's your job. The Buddha has asked you to do it. We are waiting. These are not wimpy neophytes here. These are people with practice and goodness. Please speak the Dharma. You know, that's how it began back when. So Muna Liberation is back. That's why he's called the heroic one, because he was courageous in doing something uncomfortable, insisting that Vajra Treasury hear the voices, the hearts, hear the hearts and the thoughts of the bodhisattvas gathered around. And sure enough, Moon Liberation was right. So, big heart of Moon Liberation asked Vajra Treasury once again, Disciple of the Buddha, I would like you to proclaim, proclaim from here in turn all the hallmarks of practice needed to learn the fourth ground. All right? Tell us everything we need to know in order to get this to work. So, what would a hallmark of practice be? What in the world is that? Here's one. Um, people ask me about meditation a lot. And I know in the, in the Chan school, which is our, our tradition, as well as the Thai forest tradition, uh, there, are, there are meditation instructions about things that you can experience that show you that you're on the path and instructions about how to avoid taking those things and going wrong with them. Right? Uh, one of the books that explains this and has been a mainstay of the uh, Vipassana tradition is called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. And it's, it's what you call an extra-canonical text. It's not spoken by the Buddha, but it arose in the tradition, uh, particularly around Sri Lanka. But it was early, uh, early Theravada, but... Um, in Chinese, it became the Qingjing Dao, the path of purification. This is a meditation manual. It's a book that gives you all kinds of instructions about what to, what to look at, what to look for, what to notice, 
and how to react when those things happen. It's fascinating. If you're a, um, interested in meditation beyond just sitting every now and then, somebody who's actually applying themselves to practice, who, have, who devote time every day to their meditation practice, benefit hugely by uh, looking at the path of purification, the Visuddhimagga. It's already become a public domain. It's printed and reprinted and printed and reprinted. But there's an example of, marks of pra- hallmarks of practice. As you read in the, the Visuddhimagga, let me give you an example. Um, there was this uh, Dharma door, this method of practice called the nine, the, the contemplations of a decaying corpse, right? The, the nine stages of a decaying corpse. And being a, a brand new monk in, in San Francisco in the, in the 70s, you know, I would run into this and think, whoa, that sounds kinky, you know. Wow, decaying corpses. Whoa, dude, you know. What does that mean? And uh, that's weird, you know. Buddhists do this? And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then uh, you would hear about the, the, you'd hear from Ajahn Sumedho or somebody would say, you know, that there was a, an opportunity in the Thai in Bangkok, in the, sometimes if you if you knew the the uh, coroner or the chief of police or a hospital administrator, they would sometimes arrange opportunities for the for the sangha to go look at corpses after a freeway accident or something like that. And it, the conditions had to be right, but that was something that happened. As you could you know you could go contemplate impermanence because. Yesterday was a, a beautiful young thing on her way to a dance with Oliver Future ahead of her, and uh, now her life is over, and you know, and this or his life is over. And monks being interested in looking past the surface to the reality of of. Uh, body and our lives would sometimes take this opportunity. We hear about that. Now, in America, that doesn't happen all that much, you know. You don't go contemplate impermanence uh, at the hospital. But we'd hear about this and we'd go, gee, wow, what's that like, you know? Hmm. So, um, I kind of parked that in the back of my mind and and uh, there's also, in the morning chanting in the Pali tradition, there are the, uh, there's the contemplation of the elements of the body. 32 or 36? 36. 32. 32 elements of the body. And you chant them in Pali, and you can chant them in English, and you go through the whole list of the elements of the body, and, and uh, it omits none, you know, and it's pretty sobering as you, as you look at the the uh, the snot and the, the mucus and you know and so so on and so on so anyway I picked up the Visuddhimagga back to the kind of the path of purification and in the Visuddhimagga here is the, the spokesperson Nanamali the uh, 
the Venerable who is describing all of these hallmarks. The what? The hallmarks of practice. And he says, here's what you do. If you want to contemplate a decaying corpse, it is not gawking at dead bodies. It is not kinky. It's not shocking and far out, you know, which at the time I was, my false, it increased my false thinking to think of staring at a dead body. No, here is how it is done, says the Visuddhimagga. He says, first, ask your teacher if it is suitable for you to practice this way and obtain the teacher's permission before you consider doing this. Should your good and wise advisor, your Kalyanamitra, determine that this is suitable for you, then you may possibly encounter a dead animal somewhere on the path when you go for alms rounds. And as you read this, you realize, oh, this is set in an agrarian context. This is a, in a village, right, where the, the lot is, the monastery is out of town. So as you go through the, the woods, if you go through the fields, especially if it's a farming community, you may well encounter a dead animal. So if you should do this, then ask your teacher whether this is a suitable object for contemplation. If your teacher says that it is suitable, it is good that you go contemplate, then go with your teacher and approach no closer than 25 paces from the, uh, you know, the rabbit corpse that is there, the, the half of the rabbit that's left after the coyotes ate the other half. And then contemplate. Carefully observe any affliction that arises in your mind. If you, the meditator, has aversion, then stop the practice. If you have attraction, stop the practice. And come another day, you know, or report it to your teacher. Should your mind remain calm and level as you observe the changes of the body that you see decaying here, you may approach 10 paces away one week later. You go back a week later and get closer and you look and ah, notice. And he gives you, he said, notice that now at this point, the, the body has swollen because bodies are like that. There's lots of liquids and gases inside. Notice the swollen. Should you have aversion, should you have liking, report it to your teacher and stop the practice immediately. And then, you know, he gets take you through nine different stages. You go through the, the bloating of the corpse and then the discoloration of the corpse. And then the corpse splits open. And then the corpse, I don't want to create aversion in any of you and certainly not liking. I hope nobody's liking this description. All right? so, and if you do, t don't tell me, all right, because I'm not your teacher. So, so then it goes through the bones re are revealed. The skeleton comes out. And then the skeleton, then the body is dismembered and, and pieces go to different, you know, the, the limbs are scattered. And then bit by bit it turns to dust. And the contemplation takes the meditator gradually, gradually watching his or her mind every single step of the way towards the natural changing of our own bodies. And of course the connection is as you're looking at the dead you know, bird or rabbit on the pathway, you're connecting that to your own body and our own mortality and how like that, so are we, no different. So when I read that, it was like, oh, 
well, that's not as much fun as I thought it was going to be. You know, I was looking for a horror film, kind of, ooh, groovy, you know, like, kind of, and that's, that's my worldly mind. I was totally not in a Dharma context. And as I read the Sudhimagga, it's like, yeah, step by step, oh, the point is what? The point is to watch my thoughts, not to look at something kinky, die, and decay. No, using nature to help me understand things as they are. The nature of reality. This is me. This is all conditioned things. Earth, air, fire, and water brought together temporarily with karma as the glue makes these bodies come about. And as you watch, bit by bit, and the value is on keeping your equanimity. The value is not on seeing something, you know, very kind of dramatic as someone, something's dead. It's not a Hollywood vision of death. It's not a, you know, what is it, CSI, Miami CSI version of, of death or a cowboy movie. It's notice how things change. Connect it to yourself and at all times watch your thoughts. And with that in mind, it's like, oh, wow, that's really, really different than what I thought. So where do you get that with the Sudhimagga? The nine stage of the decaying corpse is indeed a biology lesson. It's a natural history lesson. It's a psychological opportunity to observe the mind. It's mindfulness at its best. And it's also the reality of not self, impermanent, transient, and ultimately empty. So that's when the Bodhisattva here says, look for the hallmarks of practice needed to learn the fourth ground. There's an example of, of how the Dharma gives us a very, very different discipline, step-by-step, sequential, helpful, unforgettable way to connect to the reality of our bodies in the world past the surface. That's right? not the not who I see in the mirror. I don't see the decaying corpse in the mirror, but indeed, there's not a single one of us who will not pass through that process at some point. So, how, how helpful that is. Here we have the, the fourth ground, which is um, very much about hallmarks of practice. These, um, this particular chapter brings us um, what are called the 37 limbs of enlightenment known as the Bodhipakya Dharma in Pali, known as the Bodhipaksha Dharmas in Sanskrit. The Chinese call them the Sanshichi Daoping, sometimes called the Sanshichi Puti Funfa, the 37 shares of Bodhi, the 37 limbs of awakening. That's the the the, uh, the the tofu and the broccoli, not the meat and potatoes. That's the tofu and the broccoli of this text. The fourth ground is the these thirty-seven paths, thirty-seven dharmas that you practice towards awakening. And we've only we only we're almost done with the translated. This coming week, we're going to be adding. Um, a large chunk as we translate, and ideally we'll have this booklet ready in a week or two. 
But the, the 37 limbs, the 37 wings, the 37 bodhi shares, are lists of seven categories of practice that are just like the contemplations of the decaying corpse, um, where we uh, take them kind of, what do we have as, what could we relate to? Like medicines, I guess you could say. If the Buddha is the, the, uh, the master healer, then he gives medicine according to our illness so that we can get better. Of course, he's healing the Dharma body. And what would he prescribe? Well, sometimes he prescribes the, the four places of mindfulness. Sometimes he describes the four right efforts. Sometimes he describes the four bases of psychic power. Other times he describes the five roots of practice. Other times the five strengths, the five powers of practice. Then there's a list called the seven branches of awakening. And then the last is the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path that is familiar to us from the the Theravada tradition. So here's the Mahayana teaching the Eightfold Path, identical to the Pali versions. And those are the 37, right? The four this, the five that, the seven this, the eight that. Together, 37 dharmas. And our fourth, our fourth ground here lays them out one by one as, quote, hallmarks of practice. Things you do, ways you know that you're doing good, you're going right or that you've strayed off that you need to correct your course and as uh, Master Xuanhua presented it and I know as uh, the Venerable Ajahn Chah presented it it was very much adjustment cultivation and practice was always like oh okay well not quite add a little bit Oh, 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 too much. Come back. It was always adjustment. That's why a teacher and Dharma friends are so important. Because the Dharma that the Buddha taught is always the middle way. And yet it's rarely the middle. Mostly it's too much or too little. And we adjust. And without the, the admonishment of a good teacher, it's easy to just grab on to something and run it to death and think, I can't quit. If I quit, I'm, I'm quitting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disappoint the Buddha. I'm going to be a bad disciple. And, and uh, so we run it to the extreme and leave the middle. Or we get discouraged and just quit. Say, oh, it's too hard. Nobody ever did this. Why, why bother? I just, who do you know who's enlightened? You know, nah, nobody is up, basically. I'm going to go get baptized. At least then the food's better. You know, the fellowship's better at the church. Potlucks. So we, we usually go too short or too much, one or the other. And my experience with, with Master Shrenhua was always adjusting. Well, you know, I think it's time in the middle of this Chan session after the third week to teach you all some yoga. So I've invited our local yoga teacher to come and teach you headstands. So right in the middle of the tense knuckle, white knuckle, you know, gritting teeth, tone meditation, my knees hurt so bad I can't stand it, you know. What is that woman in the leotard doing a headstand in the middle of the Chan Hall for? (laughs) Sure, who is it? 
Oh, that's Shurfu. Shurfu? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Headstands? Okay, Shurfu. So we all went up doing headstands in the middle of the John retreat. Like, and turns out that Master Hua did headstands every day. That was one of his practices, I understand it. So there we go, practicing yoga. And sure enough, that afternoon, the Chan was so different. It was, we had gone too tight. And we needed to loosen up as a group. And, and he adjusted us, you know, back to the middle. Too much and too little are the same thing. So it's always this practice of, if you're going long, you know, if you don't care, if it's just for today and you bust, well, who cares? You bust and you quit. Or you slack off and forget. But so for someone who's made a commitment, who says, no, I, I really believe that the Dharma is going to develop my wisdom and my compassion, and I might have a chance to help people and the world out if I learn something here instead of simply living for myself and for the moment. So if you have that as your goal, if you've made that resolve, then you want to find the middle and adjust it so you can keep going. Another example, if you drive with your parking brake on, what happens? But before you get to the freeway on-ramp, your brakes are red hot and there's a bad smell. What was that? You're too tight. Right? But if you drive with your lug nuts loose on your wheels, blum, 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 you can't go anywhere because it's too loose. Right? So you adjust it so you can go long. And that's, the, that's these 37 limbs are all like that. Um, it's a process of finding the middle of adjusting right up to right up I think to the step before Buddhahood is all a process of finding the middle too much and too little are the same thing so uh, here we are and I'm going to take us into this set of lists let's uh, continue in the page here, Ar Shi Jing Gang Zang Pusa Gao Chie To Yue Pusa Yan Fozi Pusa Mohosa Di San Di Shan Qing Jing Yi Yu Ru Di Si Yan Hui Di Dang Xing Shi Dang Xiu Xing Shi Fa Ming Man He Dang Wei Shi. At that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva said to Muna Liberation Bodhisattva. Disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, Mahasattva, who has already mastered the third ground and who wishes to learn the fourth, the ground of blazing wisdom, should cultivate ten methods for understanding the Dharma. What are the ten? So he's agreed. Vajra Treasury says, okay, yes, that's my job. So I'll, I'm talking to you, Moon of Liberation, Bodhisattva, but I know that all the other Members of the assembly are here listening too, so I'm going to talk to all of you at once. If you have come through the third ground already and learned what I explained then, and you want to proceed to the fourth, the ground of blazing wisdom, here is the basic. Here are the basics. This is the preliminary. Ten methods for understanding the Dharma. The Chinese says, very interestingly, he says, Dang xiu xing shi fa ming man. You should, it's appropriate, it's right for you to cultivate, to practice ten shi 
Fa, Dharma, Ming, light, radiance. Mun, doors or gateways. You should cultivate according to, you should pass through, you should master, ten fa ming mun. How do we translate fa ming mun? It's interesting. It could be ten dharmas for lighting up a gate. <laughs> ten dharma, gate lighting dharmas. No, I don't think that's what it is, but that's one way to translate that. It's um, the mun part is clear, doorways. Is it a, a light door? Is it a well-lit, clean, well-lit place for cultivation? Could be. It's a door of light. It's a lighted door, a gateway. It's a path, uh, a uh, passage that is well-illuminated. Something like that. It's a Dharma light door. A Dharma illumination door. So you could say it's a gateway, meaning a method that sheds light on the Dharma. That's another way to translate this. It's a, when you go through this, you're more clear on the Dharma than you were before. So this, this word ming can also mean to clarify, to explain. So it's a passageway that helps you understand the Dharma. It's a, a doorway, a method that is well lit and it's a dharma doorway so there's this is the one of the beauties of chinese is that it's creatively ambiguous and you can the syntax allows you to stitch it together in different ways 10 methods for understanding the dharma so it could be a dharma understanding method that's how we translated it 10 dharma clarifying Passages, ways to go. Okay, you should cultivate ten Dharma illuminating methods. And so, with that in mind, we can hang on to that. We don't have to decide exactly what it is, but see what they are. The next thing to do is to dive into the, the ten and see if, if they don't tell us what they are. And we'll, we'll be doing that next week we'll continue with the, the fourth ground next week and the, the ten that they introduce are really huge talking about the cosmos very big um, frame for this fourth ground any questions or comments about what do we look at we mentioned how difficult it is to encounter the Dharma, how special, how rare, and how it's harmless. Ahimsa is the nature of this. And then we talked about the, um, the encounter between Vajra Treasury and, and those who ask him to speak and how he kind of refused and then was convinced finally. And then uh, Moon Liberation and his, his part in that and what are hallmarks of practice and uh, how, to, how you approach the Dharma in the middle, the middle path, the middle way. Any questions? Somebody? Um, yes. Yeah, you want? Yes. Um, from the happy ground, the first ground to the soul. 
their ground. In the very beginning, we always have a beautiful little team mark. Mm. But now, you know, the fourth ground and my stupidity in seeking for the team mark again, mm -hmm. but here, we don't see the mark, team mark, please. So, I'm wondering, I'm wondering that if this suggests, uh, does this suggest that from third ground to fourth ground is really Okay, what, what Iwan is pointing to is in the, the first, second, and third ground, the, one of the things that happens every time, and you can definitely um, find patterns that repeat from ground to ground. There are ten, ten discrete units in the ten ground chapter. Each ground is a unit, and they're linked, and they're the kind of the, the contents are are different and unique, but there are patterns that are the same from one to ten. One of those patterns that Yuhan just mentioned is the Bodhisattva says we need to use ten shin, ten mindsets, ten attitudes, ten orientations before we can get the ground. Here, we haven't seen them yet. That's her question. And why is that? Um, they come back, by the way. Fifth, sixth, seventh. If you look ahead, you'll see there those hearts are there, the ten mindsets, the ten attitudes. We translated them as hearts. You have to have ten hearts to enter the ground, and that's 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 not that takes us in the wrong direction. So, in other words, when you meet this education, when the Bodhisattva gives you this information about the ten grounds that he hopes we will practice, there's there's an approach. Part of it is, quote, psychological. That's the language we use now. But there's definitely a, a, um, a kind of a, um, what do you say? There's an attitude, a mindset. That's, that's the best way. That gives you this information. And it's not here, but what is here, and Iwan, I would point you to what is here. And it's right where we are here. These are Shi Fa Ming Mun. And what is a Mun here? It can it's a word that's used for school, like you know, the Chan school or the optometry school, a place where you learn these things. So it's a mun. It's also a gate. It's something that you go through, and when you do, you're in a different space. Having gone through the gate, you're in a different space. And what modifies these gates, they are Mingman. They're clarity gates, clarification gates. They're light gateways, schools. So why is this, why are we juggling as we say this? It's because these words have more than one meaning. Ming here can be clarification, clarity, but it can also be just light. It's a picture of the sun and the moon. Notice that word Ming. We're on the line three at the bottom paragraph, and it's character one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Ming. That's the left side is the sun, the right side is the moon. Sun and moon are the sources of light in the sky and for, the, for our solar system. And put them together and you have light, radiance. So they're radiance gates, gateways to light, 
They're lighted gates. They're, like we say, a clean, well-lighted place for cultivation. So what does it mean exactly? Um, if you can hold those ideas in your mind at the same time, you kind of get, the, I think you get the feeling for it. Instead of having ten mindsets, it's ten fa uh, mun, you know, practices that shed light on the Dharma. So it's slightly different. And the, um, the grounds, this, this Dashabhumi, the ten grounds chapter, has its own life outside of the Avatamsaka Sutra. If you go back to our, our text, to our Tripitaka here on the wall, and you open the Avatamsaka volume, you meet um, several different versions of the Ten Grounds chapter. And the, the information in them is roughly the same. So some people would say that the Ten Grounds chapter came out of the Avatamsaka and circulated on its own because people liked it so much. It's the stories of Bodhisattvas. Or that it, it pre-existed and the Avatamsaka gathered it in. Scholars will tell you that, that they stitched it in. It's one of the flowers in the flower garland. So there's different, and historically we won't be able to know for sure, but that kind of gives you the feeling that this is a, a, a powerful text. Of the 40 chapters in the Avatamsaka, there are several that have a kind of, a, you say, a life outside of the Avatamsaka Sutra. For example, in the Pali tradition, the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is an Agama or a Nikaya. It's, it's in the Agamas, right? The Dhammapada is Agama number 11. Or I, I forget. But it's, it's collected. The Kudaka Nikaya. It's one of the, the Kudaka Nikaya. So it, it's so popular. People love that particular teaching. And so they will know the Dhammapada, but not the Kudaka Nikaya that it came from. So in the Mahayana tradition, there are lots of texts like that. And so this is one of those. So in the midst of that, they all give us 10 mindsets that we need to approach, but they also, we also uh, uh, here have Dharma illuminating gateways. So, so let's, so Iwan, you can hold on to that. And as we go through, compare and see, are they different than the Shushin, the 10 minds or no? Question. Okay, okay, that's maybe so. That's an interesting idea. Tell me your name. Oh, my name is Chikako. Chikako-san said, this might be, um, instead of a mindset, the shin that we have, that we've already had, this might be a preparation. Once you enter the gate, then you can approach the wisdom. That's another way to look at, at what this might be, so... Um, I certainly cannot say this is how it is, but I would like to 
raise the question and then allow everybody to, to, to think it through, to contemplate. What could it be? All right. Good. Um, I wanted to... I'm going to stand up and come back. I'll be right back. to honor something that, that happened uh, this last week and this came back to us this is a volume of the, the Taisho Tripitaka our, our canon collection and uh, I used this volume for my doctoral dissertation preparation and at the time um because I had referred to this so much, I had it uh, kind of permanently out of the, the the shelf in the dining room where I had all my books. And I don't know if people remember at the time there was a one of the tables had a permanent stack of about thirty books. It was there for months, and uh, they were all thumbed. This was on top, and the light caused the gold on the binding to dim. It got bleached out. And I didn't realize this was so light sensitive. And it went dark. And which is not a good sign for my dissertation, is it? Wow, talk about a gateway of light. It was a gateway of darkness. So here was fine because there was a book this was we had a covering on it. But this got all bleached out. And it looks so bad because all the others in the set you know, you don't want the Buddha Sutras to lose, to look tatty. So for years, this was dark. And every time I would do a ceremony, I would be looking at the Tripitaka. And one volume is dark, you know, and the others are all shining with gold. So uh, it had always been on my mind and, and unhappy. And But how do you get one volume re- rebound? Because this came from Taiwan. And when uh, Du Lao Shi, Professor Du, was here, with his uh, with his wife, um, we were walking around one day, and I mentioned to him about my predicament, my problem that I had caused the, the sutra to become dark, and he said, "Oh, you know, I happen to know those folks. Um, they're right in Taipei, so I'll take it back and uh, ask them what to do." and through the help of Dharma friends who are here tonight and, and the, uh, a lot of hard work, in, uh, in a month, actually six weeks, this got rebound, regilded, and put back in shape. And when the, uh, when the volume came out of the wrapper just uh, last week and back from Taiwan, all nice and tidy and looking identical, my heart was, something went, you know, finally at last. Um, and there were all kinds of options discussed, such as, you know, getting a brand, throwing the other one away and getting a whole new volume, and that would have wasted the, you know, that's disrespectful to the contents. And 
So the company was able to simply redo it, re rebind it. So how nice. And I just wanted to express my appreciation to those who, who put out the effort and the mindfulness and the kindness to, to prevent me from having the uh, negative karma of causing the sutra to, to get discolored and lose its light. So our set is re reunited and made whole once again. How nice that is. That's, that's the right way to do it. Okay, we need to transfer the merit from the lecture. And if you would turn to the back of your songbook, which is there on your uh, bowing cushion, or if you need one, we have one for you. If you don't have one, but you have the chanting sheet that we begin our Dharma request, that also has has the dedication. And we do this with a wish that you make. It's interactive. So you can make a wish to send out your merit however you would like it to be done. And when we do it together, it gets real strength. Hey.